you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the, world. in the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. The CEOs, authors, thought leaders, visionaries, and motivators. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. It's Voss here from the ChrisVossShow.com. There you go. The Iron Lady always sings on the show. That makes it official. Welcome to the big show, my family and friends. We certainly appreciate you guys. For 16 years, we've been in the Chris Voss Show, the Pulitzer Prize winners, the brilliant authors, the, uh, geez, the White House advisors, the, uh, you name it, CEOs, billionaires, all the people in the show. The show's been going on for so long, I'm clearly losing my memory and settling into dementia. But, I mean, seriously, has anything changed in 16 years? That's where we're at. We have an amazing multi-book author on the show. You may have heard of her. She's famous in so many ways. And we'll get into that. Deanna Rayburn's on the show with us today for her latest book, A Grave Robbery. It's part of her Veronica Speedwell mystery series, book nine of nine, actually, that's come out. And we're going to be talking to her about what's inside this latest one that everyone's going to be hot off the presses for. It comes out March 12th. 2024 and we're going to get into it with her she is a new york times and usa today best-selling novelist she is a sixth generation native texan she graduated with double major in english and history from the university of texas at san antonio she married her college sweetheart and is the mother of one and makes her home in virginia what she she left texas she was a six-year, <laughs> six-generation Texas. She's like, screw this place. I'm out of here. I'm going to Virginia. Oh, wow. I don't know. We'll have to check with the authorities on that one. Her novels have been nominated for many awards, including the Edgar 2RT Reviewers Choice Awards and the Agatha 2 Dilly Wins. Do I have that pronounced right? Dilly Wins? Dilly Wins? Dillis. Dillis wins. Boy, they misspelled that. It's D-I-L-Y-S. Those <laughs> are, Brits for you. That or I'm very dyslexic. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why we left them behind and just formed our own country. And uh, last laugh, she launched a new Victorian mystery series with the 2015 release of A Curious Beginning featuring intrepid butterfly hunter and amateur sleuth Veronica Speedwell. Welcome to the show, Deanna. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. There you go. What made you abandon Texas after all those years? What the hell? Who hurt you? It's hot, man. It's uh, hot. That's true. It is. So give us your .coms. Where do you want to find? have people find you on the interwebs? It's so easy. It's DeannaRayburn.com. There you go. DeannaRayburn.com hates yep. Texas. No, I'm just kidding. No, I, I love Texas. That. I get to there go back go. usually about once a year to sign books, uh, most oh, often in Houston at Murder by the Book. We love them yeah. there. So I get yeah. my tacos, I get my barbecue, and then I head back oh, home. So it's I get all that good. barbecue. That's the only reason I don't live in Texas is because every time I go to Austin, man, I eat so much barbecue. Oh, it's like so sweating out of my veins for like two weeks after. Yeah, I and if you've ever hit up a place called Good Company in Houston, oh. man, you know you've eaten. There you go. And, and I would lay like 400 pounds. I would eat barbecue to my deathbed, and people would be like, how did Chris die? He ate too much barbecue. People would be like, is that possible? And he made it possible. Welcome to the show. Give us a 30,000 overview of your new book, A Grave Robbery. A Grave Robbery. Yeah, like you said, this is book nine in the Veronica yeah. Speedwell series. And the question I get 
asked most often, so I'm going to head this one right off, is, is this the last book in the series? And no, no, it is not. We've got more to come, which is going to be great fun. But it is following the adventures of my Victorian lepidopterist, which is just mm-hmm. a fancy word for butterfly hunter. Oh, wow. uh, and, uh, and she goes around, you know, falling over dead bodies, as you do. And she's got a really hunky sidekick. And a lot of people mm-hmm. want me to take his shirt off in every book. And oh. I usually do. Mm-hmm. And in this one, I take his pants off, too. So like, everyone should be happy. Whoa. Oh, it's not that kind of show. Calm down, no. Dan. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. That's why we don't have a lot of romance novels on the show, because we I always have to say to him, Oh, he they, they got naked on the beach again in the book? No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, you've written a lot of books. How many books do you have under your belt here? You know, I sat and added it up and I think this is my twentieth. There you go. Congratulations. It's my 20th. Yeah. Pretty prolific. And uh, so is the is the Veronica Speedwell, is that just kind of going on its own now? Have you left the others behind or do you have different lanes that you're flip, flipping around and running? Oh, well, you know, in 2022, I published my first contemporary thriller, mm-hmm. uh, which was called Killers of a Certain Age. And it has done phenomenally well. And I just turned in the sequel to that last week to my editor so that'll be coming out in march of 25 i think and that's called kills well with others there you go uh, yeah so it's about my four 60 year old female assassins who <laughs> have to band together when the organization they work for tries to kill them wow yeah. never good when that happens lots of murder and what's up with you who, who did so much murder so what's much murder <laughs> <laughs> and they're all 60 i mean Maybe maybe that menopause should get looked at by a doctor. Uh, you know, I'm I've I've told people, man, stay out of our way because yeah. we you know we have we have a lot of rage and our give a shitters are broken and <laughs> you know the only reason I'm not in jail is because I don't look good in orange. There you go. That's that's my motto too. I uh-huh. have that tattooed to me somewhere. But yeah. That those hot flashes can get out of hand, especially if you're near a knife. So evidently, that's an issue. the The book opens, and and I think most of these uh, the series, the Veronica Speedwell mystery series, they're set in a certain time period, aren't they? Is that correct? Yeah, they're all set late 1880s. Um, mm-hmm. So far, we're nine books in, and I don't think we've covered more than two and a half years. Oh wow! Uh, so they, you know, it's, it's, it's little, they're falling over dead bodies like every three or four months. Mm, that's Fridays um, around here. Right. But yeah, we, we're we're kind of at the the sort of at the the tail end of Queen Victoria's reign. So there's all sorts of interesting technology which was new for Victorians and super exciting. You know, starting off Victoria's reign, everybody is riding horses, that's as fast as you can get someplace, and mm. they're lighting their homes with candlelight. And by the time she dies in nineteen oh one, automobiles have been invented and there's electricity. And in oh. between you've got Gaslights and steam power. And so gaslights and steam power are what my my folks have. But, you know, the first telephones had already been installed in London mm-hmm. by the time my characters are, are romping around. Now, they don't have access to them because, you know, those were those were the, you know, kind of the purview of the really wealthy. And mm. it, it makes you wonder, like, what did the, the first person who had a telephone installed, like, who did they call? Yeah, that's true, huh? Who did I don't they know. call? Yeah. I don't know. I think uh, Alexander Graham Bell called his assistant in the next room. I think, wasn't that how that worked? Yeah, but how did it yeah. catch on after that? Like, who do you call? And, you, you know, call? you're like, you're like, hey, we should call that other person with a phone. Hey, what's the number? Well, our number is one. 
So they must be two. Number two. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, and it's fantastic because you, you go in and you read the minutes for the Houses of Parliament at that time. You can see them debating, yeah. should these people be allowed to have a phone? Should those people oh. be allowed to have a phone? Oh, wow. And it's just, it's really fascinating to see how Victorians adopted technology yeah. because, you know, the Victorians, apart from us, experienced the greatest technological change over a century. We're the only other folks who've lived through more of that. And so it's really interesting to see how they dealt with it because sometimes they just flipped out and they didn't cope well. You know, mm -hmm. the first people to, to try and set foot on an escalator about lost their damn minds because it's like, what? The stairs are moving. That's not okay. That, you know, that's a funny story. I, I had a, when we were young, my family adopted for, well, they didn't really adopt, but they brought him in for a, a summer Indian boy from the Indian, Indian things. And it was the uh, things Mormons were doing back then. And they'd, they'd move him in and, and uh, I don't know, they were trying to, I don't know what they were trying to do. Let's, let's leave it off the side. So anyway, he, he come for the reservation, this young man, he was like 10 or 11 and he had never ridden on an elevator before. And I remember we, I walked into an elevator with him downtown and we were going to go up a few floors and he was terrified. He's like, where are we going? Why are we going to this room? <laughs> and I was like, it's an elevator. You ever been on it? I've never been on it. And I remember when it started moving up, he, he grabbed me and, and crumpled to his knees. <laughs> He's freaking out. So yeah, that's kind of an interesting thing when you first adapt to technology. Yeah. Technology can uh, can be yeah. terrifying if you're not accustomed to it, and and Victorians had a really hard time adapting. Some mm. of them, some some people, you know, were early adapters and jumped on early adopters and jumped on board, just like you know some of us did with cell phones in the mm. 1990s. And I remember carrying around my brick. And you then mean? other folks, it it you know it took them a little longer to warm up. Oh yeah, the murderous brick. You could murder somebody with that thing. It you really like, could. It weighed like 20 pounds. You're like, well, at least I can make calls and defend myself from robbery. Okay. Yeah, I imagine. I never really thought about that. What was it like getting the first phones? And you're like, yeah, I heard somebody else got a phone. Well, uh, we're number one, and we always call number two. So their phone number must be number three. It's been pretty easy back in the, those days. And then, the, you know, they probably, there's always, there's always a salacious sex that leads any technology. So number four was probably, I don't know, the town, the gal in the corner of the town, you could call her up. It was like an early 900 OnlyFans line. Wouldn't have surprised me. There you go. OnlyFans, the best callback jokes. So the phone, the, the book opens, and it, do I have this name of this uh, character correct? Stoker? Stoker. Yeah, he yeah. is actually the, the honorable Revelstoke Templeton Bane. Honorable just means he's the, the son of a nobleman. His father was a Viscount, and he is very much the, uh, the ostracized child in his family who uh, runs, he basically runs away from home by the time he's 12 years old and gets up oh. to all sorts of mischief and mm -hmm. hijinks and whatnot. And he goes by Stoker because Revelstoke mm -hmm. is a mouthful. Why would you want to? Yeah, that's probably why he's the black sheep of the family. I don't know what that means. So the book opens in London on October 1889 and the first line of the book is I draw the line at monkeys, Stoker said with considerable severity. I will have no monkeys. Veronica, hopefully I did that the way you thought of it. But uh, so it sounds like you go right for the monkeys business right off the start. Is that oh, I, I love, love, love for my first lines to try to, you know, hook people in and be mm -hmm. unexpected and make you know, I, I want a reader to open the book and say, what's going on here? What's going on Why with the monkeys? monkeys? 
what's what's up with the monkeys and and usually anybody who's who's read any of the previous books knows stoker is usually trying to lay down the law to veronica and he's Uh, usually completely unsuccessful and so in this case he's he's trying to put his foot down about the monkeys and you know he can't there are monkeys yep that's friday's around here too so i i I feel that it's always the monkeys. Lots of monkeys. Lots of monkeys. Sometimes <laughs> over the weekend they get into the technology and the computer. So you lead this off. What what uh, what what do you feel is going on right now in the ninth book of this? That is there anything that's different? Anything that you've approved upon, or maybe you've taken some different course? Or are people going to pretty much find what they've come to expect from you? Well, you know, we the the books are they're all loosely related in that you have these two main characters and you've got some supporting characters who are the same who come in and out not everybody is in every book except for the two main characters okay uh, and there's always a mystery to solve but then the relationships kind of go throughout the the entire series you know we we've got some recurring characters who people love who pop up again in this book and then we've got some recurring characters people love who are not in this book and I'm gonna get letters I can't put everybody in every book it's too much yeah. but it's uh, no I had so so much fun writing this one because I kind of let the creepy factor off the chain a little bit with this one, and and so it's it's a little bit creepier than than the other books. Mm. There's you know the the whole premise of this is that the the at the very beginning of the book Stoker is asked he's a natural historian like Veronica is and he specializes in taxidermy. and he is asked to turn a wax figurine of a woman into an automaton to to put in a mechanism in her chest to make it look like she's breathing mm-hmm. which is what they had at the time they still have it actually really at madame tussauds no. at madame tussauds in well, he's he's doing this for a child so i hope not oh, okay um, well, I hope that better not yeah yeah madame tussauds has has a model of an extraordinarily beautiful young woman in 18th mm-hmm. century clothing but there's a clockwork mechanism mechanism in her chest and it looks like she's just sleeping and they call her the sleeping beauty and when stoker goes to kind of open up a panel in the chest to put this clockwork mechanism in, he finds that it's not a wax model after all it's a corpse wow Um, so who's dead why is she dead where'd she come from Yep. and that's that's what they've got to figure out so it's creepy right like i feel like that's creepy a grave i mean the book is titled the grave robbery i mean that's there's some there's some, uh, you know, some dark things that might be happening there. And exactly. You have to and so, I actually got to title this one. I almost never get to title them. So this one, they kept the working title. I'm actually really pleased about that. Awesome sauce. I know that sometimes <laughs> there's a there's that battle with the publishers. Uh, I've got a question for you from the audience and one of your uh, readers that uh, loves your work. And I'll get to that here in a second, Rosano. But first, t- tell us how you became a writer before I set up this question. Uh, what was the journey you had? How did you know you were a writer at a young age? age or, or whenever it kicked in for you and uh, how did you become a writer and, and get down this road i remember being super excited when i learned how to print mm-hmm. because i could get stories out of my head and get them on paper wow. so like that's how long i've been i was probably five when i learned how to print wow. and yeah. I, I was i had been making up stories all along so yeah mm-hmm. i always knew i was a storyteller and then i double majored in english and history because i knew i wanted to write historical fiction but mm-hmm. and i got a teaching certificate at the same time because i wanted to eat while i was trying to get yeah, published uh, right a girl likes her food and then it took me after i graduated from from college it took me i taught for three years um mm-hmm. and i was really bad at it 
And then it took me 14 years to get published. Wow. Uh, yeah. I wrote my first novel when I was 23, but wow. it took me 14 years to get published. And I've been, but I've been in print ever since then. When I, when I mm. sold my first book, I, that was on a three book contract. Mm. And within six months, they had given me another three book contract. So I went from being a person who like, could not get slapped in the face, you know, walking down the street in front of a publishing company <laughs> to having six books under contract. And lots of slap facing, face okay. slapping. Now, so during those 14 years hiatus where you're trying to, you know, make that first one work, were you, were you constantly rewriting or were you constantly trying to market your book or, or uh, were you writing different things, trying to figure out if there was something that would bite with publishers? Yeah, I wrote I wrote about seven or eight books during that time. And, wow. you know, the first one that I wrote when I was 23, I sent in to a publisher in New York, and the editor, of course, didn't buy it. But when he rejected it, he was really, really nice. And the last line of the rejection was, but I think your writing is absolutely wonderful. Wow. And I went, okay, that means I can do this. I can yeah. do this. I just have yeah. to figure out exactly how. And, and, you know, like I said, over the next 14 years, I wrote a number of things, probably seven or eight books mm -hmm. that are, that are complete crap. But I mean, they were essentially my, they, they were essentially my MFA. You know, yeah. I learned what not to do during oh, the course of writing those books. And I was able to get an agent and she had tried for a couple of years to place me and couldn't get any books sold. And finally she said, I just need you to stop writing for a year. I don't want you to write for a year. And I was like, oh, okay. I, I figured this was her way of firing me. But wow. I said, what, what am I supposed to do with this year? And she said, just read. And I, oh. she said, you don't know who you are as a writer. And the only way to figure that out is to know who you are as a reader. And hmm. she said, at the end of a year, you'll know what to do. And I just, I, I thought, okay, I am never going to talk to this woman again. <laughs> like, she just fired me, but Give didn't me the say it, right? Yeah. And at the end of the year, I looked around at all the books that I read, and I only read stuff that I really, really loved. And at the end of the year, I looked around and I went, huh, they all have a mystery structure. They all have a slight romantic element to them. They all have a historical setting. They all have a really kick-ass woman in them. Mm -hmm. And I realized I had a blueprint for what I needed to write. And oh. so then I sat down and I wrote a book, and it took me two years and I sent it off to my agent and I said, okay, I know it's been three years and we haven't talked, but here you go. And a week later, she called me and said, this is it. This is the, this is the one I'm going to be able wow. to sell. And that's the, yeah. that ended up being Silent in the Grave. And that was my first published novel. You had to go um, off in the wilderness and do the journey. So this the is what I was, night of the soul. There you go. So I was, <laughs> we've all, we've all done some of those journeys. Right. Uh, some of us after just drinking hard on a Friday night. So Rosano Stewart asked the question, Deanna, congratulations on your latest title. Question, would you please give a first-time novelist some helpful tips on getting off the ground and more sales? We may have done some of that. I think the most important thing is to start writing book two. Ah. Because if you get too fixated on what the first book is doing, you can really lose your momentum and lose your focus. And the best thing you can do, whether you're publishing yourself or whether, like, I've only ever published traditionally. I've only ever worked with a publisher. So I really can't speak to anybody who's doing the self-pub journey. I'm, I'm not qualified to talk 
about mm -hmm. that. Uh, but if you're publishing with a traditional publisher, you want to show them that you can keep the momentum going, that you have what it takes, that you're not a one trick pony, mm -hmm. just, you know, kind of producing this one book and, and then being done because publishers, they like to know that they can depend on you and they can keep going back to the well, you know, they mm -hmm. want to know that, that you've got more of, of what they came to you for in the first place. Yeah. They can enslave you with those multi and it's so Yeah, it, absolutely. A multi-book deal is amazing. <laughs> but it is, you know, it, it's so easy to get caught up in the numbers and to get stressed out by the numbers and to feel like just because you can quantify sales that somehow you quantify your worth as mm -hmm. a writer. But you have to remember too, yeah, it's absolutely a business. Yes, we're in the business of selling books. Yes, we need to do that. But also the most important part is you're an artist. Oh, and artist. that's the part that you can't let go of. You know, that's the part you can't quantify. That's the part that, that is the most important. Because if you're not in touch with your creativity, if you're not feeding that and expressing that, then all of it dries up and goes away anyway. Yeah, there you go. An artist, you know, the one thing that's artistic about your books is the covers. Really gorgeous? Kind of, yeah, they really kind of fit the yeah. whole 1880, you know, theme there's a lot going on there, too. You, I've been looking at one now for half an hour. Um, <laughs> yes, and I can take zero credit for them. They're put together by the art department at Berkeley Publishing. And they those a great job. Are, they are so stupidly talented. And they yeah. give me the most gorgeous covers. Yeah. And what will happen is about nine or ten months before the book comes out, sometimes up to a year, they'll, they'll ask my editor to come to me and say, are there any particular elements that, that could be fun to put in the cover is there you know give us some ideas of things to look for and are there any particular colors you're interested in and most of the time they'll include one or two of the elements i suggest occasionally i'll even get a color that i've asked for which is really exciting but yeah. they these are their brain children they they yeah. are so talented and and the covers are gorgeous yeah, they're really cool, and they yeah. they really evoke the the era of the time. They do, but they also they also show off the fact that these are mysteries, but also that there's some whimsy in them. Uh -huh. Like you look at those covers and you go, "These are not books that take themselves so seriously yeah. that I'm going to have trouble getting into it, or yeah. that it's going to be dry." Because that's the, the fear with yeah. historical fiction. It's not the darkness of the cover of the first Black Sabbath album. Uh, you know, it's kind of fun and, and uh, you know, has that whole mystery and stuff. It, I love the yeah. covers. I, you know, I learned something new on the show with all the great guests we have on, like yourself. I never knew what a lepidopterist is. And see, now you a, can whip that out at parties. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have a joke for that. But it's a fancy word for butterfly enthusiast. Why did you choose to make your character... You know, that, what, what, what was it struck you about that? I think it's kind of interesting choice. Well, when I went to college ages and ages ago mm -hmm. uh, and got my degree in history, the, the, the history that we studied, we didn't study material and social history. We studied, you know, basically what were Western European white men doing. And they did a lot of war. They basically did war. Yeah. And when they weren't doing war, they were doing trades. And and so it was a lot of war and a lot of economy. And it, oh, God, it was just so boring. But then by the time I got out of college, I was like, okay, other people were doing stuff. I know they were. I wanted to go see what women were up to. And so I started reading on my own a lot about what Victorian women were getting up to. I just There was this little niche in history of Victorian female explorers that I was fascinated by. And so I started reading up on a lot of them. And one of them 
was named Margaret Fountain. And the great thing about these, these Victorian women is they left a ton of written material behind. They, mm -hmm. they kept journals, they wrote letters home, they wrote lectures and articles and all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, some of them even took photographs, they did a lot of sketches and paintings. And so mm -hmm. we have massive records of what they were, they were getting up to. And Margaret Fountain was a lepidopterist who traveled the mm -hmm. world, made a living capturing butterflies and sending specimens home because after, you know, with the whole rage about everything Darwin was coming up with, natural yeah. science was, was hugely popular. Everybody was collecting ferns or shells or all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, botanical specimens and butterflies happened to be one of the things folks collected. And yeah. so you could make a really good living traveling the world, netting a few butterflies and sending them back to England to sell. And Margaret that. Fountain did that. And so she kept these fantastic journals. Hmm. And the great thing about her journals is not only did she talk about butterflying, she also talked about all the men she slept with which is not what you expect from a Victorian woman who's traveling the world by herself. Mm. And I just, I thought they were so interesting. Mm. And I thought she was so unexpected that I, I said, you know what, if I ever have the chance to write another Victorian mystery series, because I already did one. I, as an homage to Margaret, my main character was going to be a butterfly hunter. There you uh, go. You know, kind of as a as a thank you to Margaret for for telling her her wild and saucy tales. Her wild and saucy tales of butterfly hunter. Maybe the butterfly was a metaphor. No, I'm just gonna leave that joke alone. So I think it's really cool you made that choice and fun and great for the character. <laughs> I get yeah, I mean, you know, I plus uh, butterflies. Who doesn't love them? I mean, they're That's gorgeous true. and they're, they're cool. interesting. And some of them yeah. eat meat, so you have really? a chance. Yes, there are carnivorous butterflies. But see, that's the fun stuff to throw into a book because then readers go, seriously? Seriously? And then they go off and they learn stuff about butterflies. Yeah, I so. learn stuff every day. I always thought that would be fun to go hang out with butterflies. You ever seen like those? I'm sure you have the, the, the areas where there's like a billion of them. Like they're on. Yeah. And, just, and they're yes. really beautiful ones. Yeah, yeah. A lot of major cities have got a yeah. vivarium. There are loads of them. And anytime I'm in a city that has one, I make a point of going. And they yeah. are they are fantastic. They're usually really humid, like they'll wreck your hair. But they're they're just they're glorious to go in there and just kind of sit and just wait for the butterflies to come up and hang out on you. Really meat. Maybe you can get one to dispose of a body. You ever tried that in a book? You know, no, you'd have to go with pigs, man. Yeah, that's, that's the way to go. Always pigs. Always pigs. We won't discuss how we both know that. <sighs> <laughs> you can eat through bone. Anyway, yeah, 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 yeah. It's always it's always good because if you if you bury them in your backyard, your enemies, then they you'll always get caught. That's what I found. So and if you it. are going to bury them in your backyard, you need to put an endangered plant on top of them mm -hmm. because then people can't get authorization to dig them up very easily. Yeah. And they get the meat-eating butterflies. So if anybody tries to get near that whole area, there, there you go. go. <laughs> meat-eating butterflies. They're gonna Google this after the show. Do so, it. Do any, it. <laughs> any final thoughts about as we go out? Any any uh, tease outs? Is uh, I think you're working on the next book. So ten of ten in the series. Is that correct? Yeah. Like I said, I just turned in Kills Well with Others, which is a oh. contemporary thriller that will be out in 25. And then after that, I got to buckle down and write Veronica Ten. Yeah. Did your husband ever get worried about all this murdering that's going on in your head? No, he's very secure. Okay. <laughs> I'd, I'd be keeping one eye open. He is very secure eye. and he is very beloved, so he is there quite safe. Go. 
There you go. Well, <laughs> as long as he stays on your good side. So he probably has lots of motivation. Absolutely. And, uh, there you go. So thank you very much for coming on. We've really had fun with you. Come on, Deanna. And please come back for your future books. Uh, give us any .coms. Where do you want people to find you on the interwebs? You can find me at DeannaRayburn.com. I do a monthly newsletter and I'm active on Instagram. There you go. Grave Robbery. A Veronica Speedwell mystery comes out March 12th, 2024. Folks, pick it up where refined books are sold and all of her other books as well. I love the covers. Just really cool covers. So thanks so much for tuning in. Go to goodreads.com, Fortress Chris Voss, LinkedIn.com, Fortress Chris Voss, all those crazy places on the internet. Thanks to our audience for the questions. Be good to each other. Stay safe, and we'll see you guys next time. You know, how about that? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> <laughs>